Take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 2. And if you're able to stand, uh, we want you to stand to honor God in the reading of His Word, Philippians 2, beginning in verse 19. Philippians 2, beginning in verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I've thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, my fellow worker, my fellow soldier, your messenger and minister to my need, for he has been longing for you all. He has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we pray for your blessing now upon the reading and hearing of your word. We pray for the anointing of the power of your Holy Spirit upon the preaching and teaching of your word. And we pray that that same Holy Spirit would open the ears and the minds and the hearts of every believer in this room that we might receive the truth of your word, and we pray, O Lord God Almighty, that you would open the hearts of unbelievers in the room to receive the message that you bring to them this day, and every time your word is open, that they need today to turn from their sin and repentance and look to Jesus and be saved. And so we ask you to do this great and glorious work that we do not have the power to do, but it is the work that you do when your Bible, when your word is opened and read and then is preached and taught. So do, God, to the glory of your name, what we rejoice in your doing. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Living a life in commitment to Jesus as Lord is costly. This uh, reality is consistently and clearly communicated, not just in the New Testament. 
It is clearly and consistently communicated throughout the Bible. The greatest life you'll ever live, the only life that is life, is the life of following Jesus. But that life is costly. The reward is great in heaven. And God offers us that reward. So if you are with us this morning and you do not know Jesus as your Lord, welcome. You could be in no better place this morning than to be in this house of worship or some other house of worship where the Bible is opened and preached and taught. So we are glad that you are here and you are here, we pray, searching and seeking, looking and longing and God, we pray, will come in the power of the Holy Spirit to meet you right where you are and to make clear to you that he desires to save you. Not just from your sins so that your sins are forgiven, but from his wrath under which you are sitting this morning. If you're not living in love with and in loyalty to Jesus as Lord, that you would come to him today and begin to live that life and to understand from the start that this life is costly. The cost is high to God. We know that. We just celebrated the Lord's Supper with Haley and Rhett. We were reminded that this bread and this cup symbolize for us that Jesus gave his life for sinners. He took upon himself our sins. The price of our forgiveness is the death of the dear Lord Jesus, the only perfect person who's ever lived, the only one who can pay the price for our sin and did pay the price for our sin. The price that God pays for us to be followers of his through Jesus is not a price that is paid because God needs us. God didn't do this because he was lonely. Uh, The song that we sing here where we've changed some of the words that's done by Hillsong, a wonderful, powerful song, but in it there's a line that's heretical. He did not want heaven without us, so he brought heaven down. That assumes that in order to be complete, God needed you and me. He doesn't. That's not why he sent Jesus. The price is paid by God through his son so that we can enter into a relationship with him because we are dead in our sins and we have no life. None at all except through that life that comes to us in Jesus Christ. Paul puts it this way, God caused his love for us to stand up and to stand out in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. John puts it this way, turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4 and just look with me very briefly at what John says about what God has done in Jesus Christ to bring us life and to demonstrate to us the love that God has for us. 1 John chapter 4 verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. 
Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And oftentimes in our reading and presenting 1 John 4, 7, we stop right here and we talk about the love of God in our own understanding, in our own way of seeing and sensing the love of God. And we don't keep reading, but God intends us to keep reading because he knows that we are naturally bent to misunderstand, misinterpret, and misapply the love of God. So he tells us what God, what love is. God is love. What does that mean? Listen to what he says. Verse 9 of 1 John 4, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live. The assumption here is that we have no life except through Jesus. God sent Jesus into the world so that we who are dead might live through him. So this is love, verse 10. Not that we love God, we're incapable of loving God naturally and normally, rationally and logically. This is love, not that we have loved God, but that he took the initiative. He has loved us, and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That is, he sent Jesus to be the supreme sacrifice for our sins, to be the Lamb of God who takes away our sins, to be the offering to God that satisfies the wrath of God and satisfies the justice of God so that Al Wright, who is a sinner, under conviction of my sin, called by the Holy Spirit, can come to Jesus, turn away from my sin, and the promise of Jesus is that when I do that, he saves me, and he did, and he keeps saving me by his grace and mercy out of his great love. But it's costly to God. It's also costly to us. Turn back to Luke chapter 9. I have uh, been reading in my quiet time recently uh, by way of the reading plan that I use through the gospel of Luke. And I got to Luke chapter 9. And from Luke chapter 9 through Luke chapter 17, Jesus lays out the way of life for a person who belongs to him, and over and over and over again, Jesus is speaking about the price, how costly it it is. It's not comfortable. It's not convenient. God's not trying to fit into our plans. He's calling us to radical change. Let me just read for you two sections from this section in Luke so that we can get a flavor of the cost that is exacted from us when we come to Jesus. Luke 9, beginning in verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You want to follow me? Don't put so much emphasis on your place your physical, material space, because that is surrendered completely. Let good and kindred go, this mortal life also. Let it all go. It's costly. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. 
But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. It is important to bury your father, but this man's priorities are out of place. Uh, let those who are not belong, who do not belong to me, bury your father. You come and follow me. This is your ultimate priority. This is a hard saying. Verse 51, yet another said, I will follow you, but let me first say well, say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus here moves from that which is least difficult to that which is most difficult. And when it comes to following Jesus, leaving your family to go wherever God calls you to go and do whatever God calls you to do is, in our culture, the hardest thing you will ever do. Look at Luke chapter 14, verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now, I, I, I hope there's not a person in this room who hears those words and says, oh, that's a piece of cake. That's just life. No, I, I hope what you hear is, this is hard. And to follow Jesus takes everything. But that's exactly what he's after. In my life and your life, he wants it all. Paul has just laid out for us in Philippians in what is the central section of the letter who a Christian is and how a Christian lives. I've written in the outline, I don't think a definition, but at least one way to look at what a Christian is under Roman numeral 1, letter C. A Christian is someone who hears the call of the gospel and under conviction of sin is compelled to come to Jesus knowing the cost and from the moment that we start following Jesus this is what we know my life does not belong to me I've been bought with the price of the blood of Jesus he alone is Lord he rules 
Paul comes to Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, and he says, This is how you as a believer live in the world. You live a life worthy of the gospel. Everywhere you go, you're under the authority of the gospel and you're representative of the gospel. Then he turns in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, to talk about how we live in the church, and that is we don't consider our interest of ultimate importance. We consider the interest of others of more importance than our own. In chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, he speaks of what it means to be truly human, that we are possessed by the mind of Christ, and we're seeking to live in obedience to the Word of God and humility in our relationships. So that in verses 12 through 18, Paul says we are seeking in the world to shine as lights in the world And when we are in the church as a family, we do not grumble, we do not complain, we do not enter into disputes with one another because we belong to Jesus. How do you respond to that? I mean, honestly, how do you respond to that? I want to say, Mr. Paul, or respectfully, Apostle Paul. Are you crazy? Have you been to church lately? Is this some kind of pipe dream? Mr. Paul, if you please, would you give me some examples? You've taught us well about who a Christian is and how a Christian lives in the world and in the church as these lights that shine in the darkness to expose the darkness and to overcome it. And that we live in the church without any grumbling or complaining or disputation. Paul, please. Paul says, I'll give you a preacher and a layman. I'll give you one of each. So let's begin with Timothy. If we were in a courtroom, this would be Exhibit A. I hope in the Lord Jesus, chapter 2, verse 19, to send Timothy to you soon so that I may be cheered by the news of you. Timothy's from Lystra. Paul met him in Lystra. He's the son of a godly mother. He's the grandson of a godly grandmother. He's the son of a pagan father. Now you and I know that the Bible is clear that the home that God has ordained, the family that God has ordained as the way the family should be as a man and a woman, husband and a wife, that God blesses with children and those children are taught the word of God and the way of God by their godly mother and father. But you and I live in a sinful world, and that does not always happen, and we know that. So I'm grateful that there are more than one or two examples of those single parents in the Bible who were extremely godly people. And they did... Timothy's mother and grandmother, aren't you grateful for them? And they taught him the word of God. His father was a pagan. His father had little or nothing to teach him. 
that was of infinite eternal value, but those his mother and his grandmother poured into Timothy. I'm grateful for single parents who understand that the most important thing they can do if they are a single mom is to pour into their children the Word of God and the way of God and to bring them to a church and pray and seek godly men to do what dad is not doing. And I pray and give thanks to God for those single fathers more than you know that they are pouring into their children, teaching them the truth of God, and they come to a church where they are seeking and praying that God would raise up godly women, and they're here in this church, praise God, who pour into these children and teenagers so that they can do what mom is not doing. Timothy. Timothy was... Well, frankly, he's one of my favorite people in the Bible because Timothy was quiet. Timothy was introverted. Timothy was non-controversial. Timothy was very caring and compassionate. Timothy hated conflict. Paul called him when Paul was teaching him that there were situations in which he had to step in and get involved. Timothy was full of fear. Do you know what that's like? Situations that you need to address, but you're so afraid. Paul has to teach him about fear. Don't fear. Don't fear people. Timothy was anxious. Timothy was a pastor in Ephesus. It, it was not a Baptist church because Paul wrote to him that in your anxiety, you need to take a little wine for your stomach. Timothy was called of God to be a leader, but he struggled with leadership. But he was, he was much needed by Paul. And so Paul says, I hope soon to send Timothy to you. And he speaks to us about Timothy's Conduct and his character. In verse 19, it's all about his conduct. In verses 23 and 24, it's about his conduct. We just read verse 19. Listen to verse 23 and 24. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I can see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. But then in verses 20 and 21, the two most important verses in this section about Timothy, Paul speaks about his character. I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Uh, the, the, the phrase here refers to Timothy's concern about their legitimate or their real needs. He's sincerely concerned about your legitimate needs. And our legitimate needs are not material and physical. Our, our legitimate needs are spiritual. How are we doing in relationship with God? Because as long as things are right there, everything else will fall into place. Paul says, I'm going to send Timothy to you. 
Because Timothy is genuinely concerned about your genuine needs. He won't waste a lot of time on issues that are of non-importance. He will drill down and find out how you're doing individually and collectively in relationship to God. Paul had taught him. Paul had taught him well. And he is coming there to address those needs. He's not going to ask them what their needs are. He's not going to ask them how they feel about what they want. He is going to address legitimate needs in relationship to God. Why is he going to send Timothy? Verse 21 is a sad verse, but it's so profoundly true in so many churches. Verse 20, I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek They all seek. Now, Paul's in Rome, and he's able to visit with people in the church in Rome. So Paul, we would say using our modern concept, Paul has a staff around him. Paul has people that are helping him in the ministry there, but this is what he says about those people. I don't have anybody around me serving with me like Timothy. None like him. For they seek their own interest. Not those of Jesus Christ. It's not just that they're selfish and self-centered. It's worst. They are concerned about what most concerns them in the church. A church will lose her way when it's filled with people whose only concerns are what concerns us. As a pastor, I have... uh, I have seen this through the years, sadly seen this through the years. I've watched parents. This is a landmine that a wise pastor would not walk into. But I've watched parents who, from the time their children are born in the church, are only interested in what their children are involved in. And whatever their children are involved in, they're all in. And it is the most important thing going on in the whole church. The church exists for that. Whether they're in the nursery or preschool or children's ministry or student ministry, they graduate from college and all of a sudden they're consumed about college ministry. But this is the sad part. When their children graduate from college, if they go to college or go into the military or go into the workforce, when their children are gone, I've watched parents literally walk away from the church just to come on Sunday morning and sit in worship and no longer serve the gospel to the glory of God. This is what Paul is talking about. People who are just consumed by their own interest. I've heard Tony say this many times since he's been here. This is a busy church. We've got lots of ministries going on. Which of these ministries is bad? I'm not asking for a response. They're all good. They're gloriously good. They're wonderfully good. Some of you absolutely love Awana, right? Some of you love Upwards. But when we get to the place that we exalt one ministry over the other and we want everybody to be involved in that one ministry, we're in trouble. We're like those people Paul had around him. We're just concerned about our own interest.
Timothy wasn't because Paul had taught him like a father teaches his son. You know Timothy's proven worth. How as a father, as a son with a father, verse 22, he has served with me in the gospel. The word served is the word for slave. He is a slave to the gospel. His whole life is driven by the gospel. I taught him. I'm his spiritual father and I taught him and he is living out what I taught him. He's not consumed by his own interest. He's not driven by his own concerns. That's exhibit A. Exhibit B is Epaphroditus. This is the only mention of Epaphroditus in the whole Bible. His name includes the name of the Greek goddess Aphrodite. I wished I knew what that meant. I want to know what his mom and daddy were thinking when they named him that. He must have been a beautiful baby, but all babies are beautiful. They must have thought he was going to be a lover and not a fighter. I don't know. But what I do know is that he was raised in a pagan home. He was pagan, but he got saved. He joined the ministry team of Paul while Paul was in Philippi. He was a member of the church in Philippi, and Paul begins by showing us his character. Verse 25, I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus. The first thing he says is he's a brother. He knows what real family is. Real family is brothers and sisters in the body of Christ with Jesus being our older brother under God being our father. He's a fellow worker. He yokes himself to the ministry of the gospel and he gives himself fully. But it's a fight. He knows the battle. Verse 25, he's a fellow soldier. But for you, he's your messenger. The word is the word for apostle. He is the ambassador from the church in Philippi to me. And he's a minister. He's one that serves me in my need. He is here to help me. He's not a preacher. He's not an evangelist. He's not a prophet. Not a teacher. He's a servant. Every church needs to learn that the most important person in your church doesn't exist because there are no important people. We're all servants. But the most important servant doesn't stand behind this pulpit. It's not the people you see in here. The people you don't see in here. It's the people over in the nursery now where babies are crying and they're asking, how much longer is that dude going to talk? We need to go home. And by the way, it's not just parents with children who need to serve in the nursery and the preschool. They should. But it's people who don't have any children. Uh, Ann and I are moving toward retirement from this church, but we're not going to leave this church because we love this church. You know what I long for? I don't want to ever be here on Sundays when I retire. I want to be preaching. But when I'm here, you know where I want to be? I want to be holding a baby in the nursery. I would say I want to be tackling toddlers, but I'd be lying. You can handle them, two-year-olds. 
But babies don't fight back. They just weep and eat and you know what else they do. The most important people in the church are those you never see that are serving behind the scenes. You never see the brogans until something goes wrong and the other guys that are working with them in the booth. What would we do without our ushers in this church and our security team in this church? You don't see them. I hope you don't see them. I hope you never see our security team in action and say, boy, they're good. Epaphroditus was that. He was a servant of the living God. He had risked his life. He'd gotten sick. Verse 26, he's been longing for you all because he's been distressed because you heard that he was ill. That bothered him. He was working for Jesus. He was serving Jesus. And he gave so much time and energy that he got physically sick. And he didn't want them worrying about him, stressing over him. Because he had learned from Paul that if he died, it was gain. Paul says in verse 27, I love this. Indeed, he was ill near to death. Near to death is a picture phrase. We translate it near to death, but this is actually what it means. It means he, he moved in next door to death. That's pretty close to death, right? When you're living in the house that's right next door to the house called death, he was near death, but God had mercy on him. But I'm going to send him to you so that you may rejoice in seeing him again that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor, such men. One time in the Bible, serving behind the scenes, meeting the needs of the pastor. Honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. What does that mean? He risked his life. He came near death. He gambled with his life. That's what the word risk means. So that he could complete what was lacking in your service to me. Turn over to Colossians. Because Paul helps us here in understanding what it means. Colossians 1.24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Is Paul saying that the death of Jesus wasn't enough, the resurrection of Jesus wasn't enough, that he has to come along and fill it up? No, no. This is what he means. The church needs and has to have people that are so sold out to Jesus that those people will serve in such a way that what they never want is recognition. They will give their lives for the gospel, the glory of God, and the good of the church. And they never want their names ever lifted up. 
because their service is under the authority of one name. Church is a church in the truest sense of the word when we all serve where God has called us to serve and we sell out our lives to serve God through his church even when that service may cost us our lives. Being a Christian, being a Christian is costly. Do you think it's fair to ask what your being a Christian is costing you? Is it overreach for me to end by saying to you, if your Christianity is not costing you, you may, in fact, not even be a Christian? Think about that old rugged cross as we sing, upon which Jesus gave his life. It cost him to save you. It will cost you to serve him. And Father, we thank you for the price you paid purchasing us from your wrath and our sin and the deserved judgment. And now may we, as we sing, examine our own hearts, think about our own lives, think about our own service in this church. Think about where we are serving. Are we doing it out of personal interest, family interest? Are we just simply asking, where do you want us? Where do you need us? Our lives belong to you because you gave your life for us. In Jesus' name, amen.